In Jesus' name, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. This text is not the first time that St. John called Jesus the Lamb of God, or as the Latin translation has it, Agnus Dei. Seems like that Agnus Dei was a main theme of John's preaching, along with what was probably his central thrust, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. The Baptist was, as he confessed of himself, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. And that's all really the same thing, or at least related things. And they all surround the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel. As St. Andrew told his brother, we have found the Messiah in fulfillment of their hopes. But it wasn't only for that one nation, but as Simeon sang over the infant Messiah, this was salvation which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Hope is fulfilled in the Lamb of God. St. John the Baptist was preparing his disciples for this because the preached gospel sends followers to Jesus. Look how quickly these two disciples moved. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They'd been primed. They had been following John for some amount of time, hearing him preach, and now it was as though he was saying, this is it, I have nothing more to say to you except to point to that one. That's the one I was talking about. He's the one I've been preparing you for this whole time. In the same way, if Jesus walked visibly and corporally into this congregation, I ought to respond the same way, pausing in my preaching to say, that's the one I'm talking about. Look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I should at the very least ask him to take over preaching. I'd be thrilled if people stopped listening to me at that point and went and followed him, because that's what my preaching ought to be, pointing straight to Jesus. The evangelist records the Baptist saying this just prior to our text, pointing to Jesus again. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I was talking about when I said, the one coming after me outranks me because he existed before me. John's whole work was preparing for this Jesus. And that's what the preaching of repentance meant. The kingdom of heaven or the heavenly reign was coming near to the earth. It was a reign which would be ushered in by the Messiah, the Christ. Just as one king was overthrown by a greater one through a lamb in the Old Testament Passover, here in the New Testament, the Lamb of God would also, by his death, overthrow the wicked Pharaoh Satan and break his fetters of sin, establishing his gracious reign of God over all whom he had redeemed. And therefore, repent says the preaching, because this life-changing watershed event was coming to pass, just as one similar to it had occurred before. In his preaching, which St. Andrew and the other disciple certainly had heard, John said this, Therefore produce fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not even think of saying to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, because I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So change your life, change your actions, change your mind is what repent means. 
Because of your sin, because of your hypocrisy, because you are allied with the world and with Satan and with sin, you need to change. Or else the angel of death will destroy you and throw you into the fire. Such warnings against sin and pronouncements of harsh judgment were certainly part of the sermons that St. Andrew heard. The weight of the law was heavy because the Baptists denounced some as offspring of vipers for their hypocrisy. When I was in high school, I read The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne for an English class, and my initial reactions were negative, mostly because of the reactions of some of my classmates, who I knew were atheists or agnostics. The character of Hester Prynne in the novel is condemned in this small New England settlement for her adultery, and she's forced to wear a scarlet letter A on her front as a symbol of her sin. And she was paraded through the town as a church official proclaimed this, Open a passage, and I promise ye, Mistress Prynne shall be set, where man, woman, and child may have a fair sight of her brave apparel. From this time till an hour past meridian, a blessing on the righteous colony of the Massachusetts, where iniquity is dragged out into the sunshine. Come along, Madam Hester, and show your scarlet letter in the marketplace. You note the self-righteous tone of those words. The reason I was so embittered in high school was because I saw how so many had only this as their picture of Christianity, a people who condemned all sorts of sins and held themselves higher than the rest. Obviously, that's not what this gospel is about. You and I understand that this is law, and there are many people who throughout history have abused the law in the name of Christianity, upholding a self-righteous judgmentalism. That's really unfortunate. The real gospel message that is preached is a comforting salve. The warning is there because the danger is real, hell is real, but that's only in preparation. That's only the first word, and it's colored with hope. The false idea that people get is if you only behaved the way we righteous behave, then you'd be accepted. And that's the way the characters of that Massachusetts town in the novel acted. But the truth is, wrath is coming on sinners like you and me. But look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the hope to which St. Andrew clinged. His sin weighed heavy upon him, and that is why he followed that prophet in the desert. Your sin weighs heavy on you, and that is why you come to this church. Self-righteousness might drive some to this place, but they should leave feeling insulted, just as the Pharisees and Sadducees who were insulted by the Baptist. But those who come with the heavy weight of sin should leave running after the Lamb of God in hope and joy. When Jesus asked those two who came after him, what are you looking for? They answered him with their address to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? They were looking for him. They needed this teacher, this lamb, and whatever he could give them because what he could give them was forgiveness, life, and repentance. John had paved the way straight for this Messiah to come with his teaching. Flattening the hearts of those two disciples was part of that. Their sins had been accused, flattening them down, and their hopes had been aroused, readying the path for the gospel to come and walk on it. And finally, here he was, the fulfillment of their hopes. All that day from around 10 a.m. until sundown, they stayed with Jesus. The preaching of the gospel had led them there, 
And then especially in Andrew, we see how the received gospel is then shared in joy. The first thing Andrew did was to find his own brother Simon. Because he recognized how important this blessing was, Andrew was moved to share it. And because it had come to give him such comfort, he was overjoyed to rush and give the same comfort to his beloved brother. We have found the Messiah, he said. And just as the preached gospel had brought him to Jesus, Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. In the text, he's called Simon Peter and then Simon. And a verse after the text, Jesus calls him Simon, son of Jonah, and declares, you will be called Cephas, which means the same thing as Peter. He would later become the spokesman for the disciples, the one who would confess, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he was able to confess that truth because it had first been preached to him, beginning here with his brother who said, we have found the Messiah which is translated the Christ. And you also confess this truth as you've been trained to, the creeds. You believe that Jesus Christ is true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, and that he is your Lord. Words like this, repeated again and again, in your hearing and in your mouth, they bring Jesus to you, and they create faith in your heart. And you receive him then in joy, and you in turn share him with those around you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, said St. Paul, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. By the word of that lamb who was slain, the gospel message, the good news of his birth, his death, his resurrection and his coming again, you are filled with the word needed to strengthen yourself and your brothers and sisters. That same word is resounding in you in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Even as Christmas time nears, you may have many hymns and spiritual songs that you know by heart on repeat in your home, all reminding you of the reason for the season. In this Advent season, the reason is the same that Andrew had, the same reason he knew his brother shared that hope as israel had hoped for deliverance in egypt or each time they were taken captive by the surrounding nations or while they were in exile in babylon the nation was hoping for deliverance again now under the rule of rome but especially through all of this and at this time now they hoped for deliverance from sin that foundational need was there for Peter. Andrew knew that Peter was longing for this, desperate for the Messiah to come, and therefore he shared the fulfillment of that hope with joy. Not being part of the nation of Israel, you don't have the same national hope, but you do have that same foundational need. You need a deliverer from your sin. The rhetoric of our world is turning away from the language of sin and has been doing so for generations. The world offers you a false peace, a false messiah, in saying that your wrongdoings never really existed in the first place. You're really just misunderstood or misguided. But this messiah of the world does not speak for God. It only clouds your eyes to the truth. It does not give you truth. The Gospel of John relates this earlier. The real light that shines on everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own, yet his own people did not accept him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
And a part of what makes evangelism hard is exactly that darkness of the world that people don't want have any see any need for the Jesus that we're trying to give them. What does Jesus give, though? What is it that he provides that you need, that the whole world needs? He is the Savior born for you. He was given the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. So what does Jesus give you? We often say forgiveness, life, and salvation. And these are words that are easy to just throw away, but take the time to understand them, to taste them and see how good is the Lord. And then having received that gospel, you can in turn share it in joy. Forgiveness means that although you were in the wrong, indebted to a higher power, deserving of wrath and punishment, you've been given the full and free forgiveness of all of that, lifted up to a state of holiness instead. You can stay with God in his presence now. He wants to reveal himself to you and to be with you. You have no need to work for it because in Jesus, he comes to you. Life means all the many blessings that you receive during your time on earth and because of your forgiveness, your life beyond as well. You receive food, you hear music, you see sunrises and art, you feel warmth and snow, you have tears and laughter. The Lord's Prayer refers to your daily bread, and all of this you have. But all of these are themselves only the side courses of that great feast of life that you have, and the joy and hope and faith and love that you have with God. Life is knowing and being known by the Father who made you. He tells you in his gospel, because of Jesus' death for you, that your life is to be made glorious in him. And salvation means that you've been rescued. You were in the jaws of death. You were doomed because of your sin. You were enslaved to Satan, who used you as a trophy of defiance against God. But God snatched you out. Jesus came into the war zone, into the slave pits, where he died and was buried. But in his resurrection, he burst out and carried you with him into a new promised land. And he's gone ahead to prepare a place for you. He's saving you a spot. And he has saved you to take possession of it. All these things are what you are still hoping for. But you have them now because Jesus has already come. Every sermon you've ever heard is pointed back and said, Look, the Lamb of God. You've learned of his life and his death and his resurrection. You've seen what he has done for you. You've received him in the word and in the sacraments. And now you are also looking ahead to when he will come again. Your hope remains fixed on the last day when Jesus will come to complete your joy by bringing you to be with him in eternity. So now, while we wait, we continue to receive the Messiah as he comes in the gospel so that we stand in reverence, ready to run after him and go wherever he is staying. When he comes in the sacrament, where we sing again the words of the Baptist, O Christ, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. We recognize how he comes, and we joyously tell each other, supporting each other in shared faith, we have found the Messiah. Our hope is fulfilled. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.